Let's think about some variables that we study with those pieces of technology that I listed. And the variables include attention, they include cognitive workload, and that's a form of working memory, meaning that at some point you're exposed to some pieces of information and your brain should be able to hold those online for a while until you complete a cognitive task. So for example, if I present three components of our solution, whatever that solution is, you would hope that by the end of your pitch, people will still remember what those three components were. That's, that's working memory or cognitive workload. Hello, and welcome to C-Suite Marketing. I'm Rob Levitt. Today's episode with neuroscientist Carmen Simon explores how the brain reacts to B2B communications and what marketers need to know to gain attention, to avoid boredom, and to help customers actually remember our main points after the conversation ends. The big takeaway for me is that business customers will only remember 10% or less of your presentation a day or two after it's done. So the big challenge for marketers is controlling which 10% they remember. We talked a lot about the balancing acts that marketers have to perform as we navigate through the competing desires of the brain for simplicity and complexity, for familiarity and surprise. And we even talked about your brain on Zoom and the relative merits of virtual and authentic Zoom backgrounds. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation and I'd love to know what you remember after you finish listening. So drop me a line. C-Suite Marketing is sponsored by Boardroom Insiders, a business intelligence platform that makes executive engagement easier than ever. Learn more at boardroominsiders.com. Learn more about this podcast and all the work we do on executive engagement, ABM, and other B2B marketing issues at itsma.com. And please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Now for today's show. Carmen, thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me and uh, welcome everyone. So let me just jump right in. You are a brain scientist, a cognitive neuroscientist. Why brain science and B2B marketing? I like that combination because um, anytime anyone creates some content, you hope that somebody else's brain processes it and uh, pays attention and reacts to it and remembers, and most importantly, decides to act on that content. All of those are cognitive processes that happen in the brain. Everybody has a brain. So it's important to, uh, to capture those things at the moment when they happen, by the way, because you could use some traditional research methods such as you have a piece of content, people view it, and after the fact, you send them a survey to see whether they paid attention and whether they are engaged and maybe um, if they decide to act. But that's after the fact, and our emotions and thoughts are fast and fleeting, so it's important to capture them when they happen because everything else is reported memory, which is quite often fallible. 
You know, so let's let's talk about memory because I know that's really your specialty. You've taught me over the years that we've known each other that it's really hard for people to remember what marketers or salespeople try to tell them or show them or present them. They don't remember very much. Um, but if you don't have memory, you can't have action. So explain that. Yeah, we look at um, memory fueling decisions. It's difficult to make a decision based on what you forget. You typically decide based on what you remember. And it's, uh, it's true when it comes to B2B content, whenever you expose your audiences to any type of content, whether it's a, a business pitch, whether it's a video, a podcast like this, uh, whether it's uh, an infographic or an ebook, if your memory is your is your goal, then of course we have to do something extra to make sure that people remember what you want them to remember. Otherwise, after two days, most of that content will have dissipated, and then it's a little bit harder for audiences to uh, make decisions in your favor. We've calculated that people forget on average ninety percent after forty eight hours. Unfortunately, sometimes it's even more than 90%. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just did some studies last year where that percentage reached 98 wow. getting rates. But it is also possible where that percentage is a little bit lower. So it's possible for people to remember 18% of your communication. It's hardly ever that they remember everything from, uh, from what you said. So that's why it's good to be humbled by those percentages and start being deliberate about what you want to put in people's minds, even though it's a small percentage, because otherwise, if you're not deliberate, not only do people forget a lot, but the little they remember is a chance. Right. So I want to come back to that. Um, another thing you've taught me is, you know, are you in control of the 10% that they might remember? But before we, before we go there, I think this is so important because the kinds of companies that we work with, the kinds of solutions that we're marketing and selling are complex and the decision process is a long considered one. So you need a lot of memory, right? <laughs> because it may be months. Yes. And most of the time you're not in the room. I mean, now you're not in the room at all, of course, but even before or hopefully soon, all the discussions that are happening about your solutions are taking place without you or most of them. So true. And I'm glad that you're reminding us all that decisions happen over a prolonged amount of time. So therefore our aim must really be long-term memory, like really long-term oh. memory. So then from the angle of that question, we can consider some variables that would then impact memories and as a result, decision-making. One such variable is repetition. There is no secret. Repetition is the mother of memory. So one way to control your 10% would be to have one main message and come back to that consistently and constantly. I think the key word there is consistently because sometimes what we see from B2B communicators is that the messages tend to change slightly from one occasion mm -hmm. to the next. And what that does to somebody's brain is it creates one mental model one moment and then another mental model another moment weeks later and yet another thing weeks later after that. So if you look at somebody's technical presentation, for instance, I was just seeing one the other day, let's just say that you have uh, an architecture of sorts. Everybody has an architecture these days. Yeah. And then perhaps you see it represented as um, a combination of blocks that build themselves horizontally. 
So that's one mental model. And then weeks later, I saw, I saw the same blocks, but now they are built vertically in some other kind of combination. <sighs> They're still the same components, but now the mental model was rearranged a little bit. And weeks after that, now I saw a combination between the two. So it takes that much more energy from the brain to start combining and making sense of things. And we trust that our audiences will make sense of unclear messages. And mm. often they give up so quickly. Because it, right, it's clashing or it's just too complicated. Yes, yes. And you're only a phone away that will offer you some extra stimulation that's right. a little bit easier to, <laughs> to come. <Right. laughs> and you don't have to exert so much uh, mental energy. It's unfortunate that I'm afraid we are heading towards an era of superficiality. Uh, mm. And I hope that we don't stay there for too long. But if people tend to seek cognitive ease, then be sure that you'll have to, uh, you, you provide it at some point because the brain is a cognitively lazy organ. There is just no mm. easy way of, of saying it. <laughs> All right, now tell me more. Let's go back to this idea of, uh, or are you in control of the 10% that your audience will remember? How do you put your science to work to, yes. to make that possible? So let's, uh, let's think about um, the first dimension we addressed, which was uh, repetition. Make sure that you establish a main message that you think will serve you and your audience as well, and come back to that repeatedly and consistently. So the mental model stays the same. Familiarity too, by the way, will feed into your credibility because when something stays constant across time, we tend to trust that message more versus become skeptical. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why the brain finds um, uh, some difficulties with changes. So repetition is one variable. Uh, let's think of some, uh, some others. What's a precursor to memory, if that's our goal? It's attention. One of the reasons why we don't remember and don't decide is because we don't pay attention to begin with. I think attention is a little bit harder, especially now that people are remote, because in a remote environment, it's a little bit harder to detect. Are people even looking at what I'm showing or are they somewhere else? I learned this word, by the way, the other day that's called um, fubbing, P-H-U-B-B-I-N-G, fubbing, which means maintaining eye contact while texting. Oh, interesting, interesting. I, I, I will maybe plead a little guilty on that one. <laughs> so imagine if you're on a, on a Zoom call, very much like we are right now, and I could very easily maintain eye contact with yeah. you, but right here under the table, I could also just as easily send a quick text message to somebody else. We're developing right. these types of skills, and then we wonder why is it that after 48 hours, people only remember 10% or, or less? Right. So then the question is, how do we fix that? How do we get attention when it counts? Uh, there is um, a study, a neuroscience study that I completed uh, last year where I was asking, what is the impact of animation and annotation on the attention during a Zoom call, for example? Yeah. And um, for those who are willing to go there, we are noticing that you need a combination of animations. For instance, in PowerPoint, you can just um, have your typical PowerPoint animations appear, disappear, fade in, fade out. That helps to pull people in. Exactly, to draw them to where you want them to pay attention. But on top of that, what helped even more was the annotation. So imagine that in PowerPoint, you have that pen function. So when you're yep. sharing something in slideshow mode, there's a pen that you can grab. And whether you're using your um, uh, finger on a trackpad on your computer or some people have a stylus, 
and that's even easier. It was a combination of animation plus annotation that made a difference in how people were paying attention. Two dimensions surprised me in that study. One was if you're using that combination, animation plus annotation, you can impact the attention for both experts and non-experts. I know that many of our B2B audiences quite often present to people who might be technical, but sometimes they may not. And right. we know that experts and non-experts pay attention differently, but when you use that combination, you can draw everyone's attention to what, uh, what counts. Mm -hmm. And the second surprising finding that I had in that study was that it was better to have no animation at all, so display everything regardless of how complex, versus too little animation. Because in that condition where things were kind of trickling in on a slide, some components, some architecture blocks, whatever they were, but there weren't enough animations, people were starting to get impatient and bored and therefore they would uh, disengage. Oh, wow. It was interesting because usually people say, oh, don't display all of your complexity all at once. Well, we already know from other studies, for example, that the brain synchronizes better with a complex stimulus, by the way, not with a simple one. And um, at least they had something to engage with versus a too little animation. It was not properly done. So people got bored. Interesting. So this is a good time to back up a little bit and talk a little more about the kinds of research that you do that helps us to create more compelling messages and presentations. Carmen, tell us a little bit about the kinds of research. Yeah, I so said we've already alluded to, uh, to a few and um, they will translate into some tangible guidelines that um, anybody listening to us can apply as uh, hopefully as early as this afternoon. So we talked about repetition, the kinds of research we do is to see what is it that the brain remembers and why is it that you might not remember some things and we know repetition helps. We mentioned controlling your attention and that was a neuroscience study around animation, annotation. We did another one um, a few months ago where I was asking the question, what is the impact of predictable imagery on the business brain? Because everyone at some point needs to include some images in what they create. And sometimes those images come from stock photography databases and um, they are predictable. You might see happy people looking at their phones and uh, right. uh, at their computers. Sometimes they have this concern uh, posture of what something is going wrong. And then you have your typical IT kind of room. Right. And uh, from, a, from a memory perspective, then in addition to uh, repetition and uh, attention as directed through animation or annotation, we can add another guideline around uh, distinctiveness through visuals because the brain is a highly visual organ. So we're asking, are all images created equal? Um, what does the cliche do to the brain? Because yeah. if we're really honest, at some point, we all have used some cliche imagery. <laughs> Oh no, hey, Carmen, I am- Maybe not you. <laughs> no, 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 I am cringing as we have this conversation because I, I know I'm so guilty of doing these things. <laughs> so what we did in that study, we were um, analyzing the, uh, the brain on eBooks. And one eBook had um, a few uh, cliche images in some of the pages. And in another condition, we removed the images altogether because we thought, well, let's just see how the brain does without those pictures. And in the third condition, we replaced those images with some less predictable, more functional, less decorative images. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, as you can you can guess, this uh, third group uh, performed the best. So it is worthwhile to spend some extra time. But the surprising finding for me was that 10 to 20% of a business artifact can get away with cliche images because the brain finds comfort in the cliche. So when you reach those pages, you're not requiring any extra cognitive effort to recognize that a woman looking at a phone is meant to indicate that things are great in the world because she has a smiling uh, <laughs> demeanor. Right. However, beyond that, what we also noted that if you're exceeding that threshold, then sure, the brain doesn't take extra cognitive energy, but then that reflects poorly on the text. So then the text becomes less engaging, less interesting, as a result, less memorable. Okay, so now back up one more step. How are you actually doing the research? Because I can remember putting on a crazy headgear uh, at one of our events, but tell us a little bit about the actual methodology here. The methodology includes a combination uh, typically of five signals. One signal comes from the EEG cap. This is what you are wearing in one of our experiments uh, a while back. Mm -hmm. uh, with this EEG cap, we get to record the brain waves that get generated in reaction to stimulation, like a, a Zoom call, a PowerPoint pitch, uh, an ebook, uh, or a podcast. Then we also use an ECG cable, that's an electrocardiogram. So we captured the heart rate and uh, we hope that people develop business content with a pulse. <sighs> <laughs> we also use eye tracking because we're intrigued to notice where is it that the eyes are looking for how long, whether they return to a stimulus frequently and um, whether they uh, focus on some components at the detriment of another component on the same screen. We also use a device that's called a GSR, that's a galvanic skin response that sits on your fingers. And uh, we use that in hopes that whenever you present something that's a bit more exciting, the skin conductivity changes and we can capture that. Mm. And then we also use uh, the webcam that uh, would be already embedded in the computer where the stimulation is presented. And through that, we get to record some facial expressions that might result out of being exposed to that uh, stimulus. But I have to say that out of all these signals, this facial coding is um, a bit less reliable because what I'm noticing is that business people have learned to develop poker faces. Uh -huh. For instance, I was just doing um, a study like this on investors and um, I have never seen a more neutral population being exposed to content. Wow. <laughs> So you just, you couldn't read them. You could not read them at all. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Um, okay. So how do you, so I can see how you can somewhat easily, I guess, pick up attention, yes. right? Heart goes faster, skin perks up, facial expression, eyes are, and so on. How do you then connect that to memory? I love that question because let's think about some variables that we study with those pieces of technology that I listed. And the variables include attention, they include cognitive workload, and that's a form of working memory, meaning that at some point you're exposed to some pieces of information and your brain should be able to hold those online for a while until you complete a cognitive task. So for example, if I present three components of our 
solution, whatever that solution is, you would hope that by the end of your pitch, people will still remember what those three components were. That's, that's working memory or cognitive right. workload. If you press that too much, then at some point, some items get replaced with new items and new items yet. And if you're not careful, you reach the end of that pitch and people will not really have remembered what you want them to remember. So that's why cognitive workload or working memory are, are an important dimension to us. Hmm. Also, we study in combination um, arousal and valence. Arousal means how alert the brain is in the moment, because sometimes you might be attending to something and you might be a bit nonchalant and relaxed, but sometimes you're all amped up and uh, a bit more energized so we can capture that. That's why we use the ECG cable mm -hmm. and the, uh, the GSR. You can also capture this dimension that's called valence, meaning how much you like the stimulus. And we hope that business content beyond being so transactional and so finance oriented yeah. at some point does give the brain this notion that this is enjoyable. I, I like listening to this. And we've also added this um, variable around motivation because what's the use of memory if people don't act on what they view? Right. And the more recent variable we're adding is mind wandering. Because if your pitch goes on for a while and uh, your explanations are uh, going on and on, it is impossible for the brain not to mind wander. And the mm -hmm. question that I would have for all of us is what can we do to bring the brain back? And um, in fact, not to fall into that trap, I'll pause here for a moment just to let you reflect on, on those variables because it's a combination that leads to something that's memorable. Oh, interesting. So it, it sounds to me like there are a number of tensions at play. The brain is lazy, but the brain wants to work. You can't let it be, you've got to give it some tasks to do. Right, repetition, but maybe not too much. Cliche, but carefully, right? Yes, and that's, I think that's a profound remark that you're making because there's always a tension between these seemingly opposite factors. And what we're noticing through the research is that neither one at extremes is good. Simplicity at an extreme leads to creating a content that's a snoozer but too much complexity will get the brain to disengage. Familiarity helps for a while because the brain is lazy, but too much of it will lead to boredom. So you have to have some element of surprise and some novelty. A cliche brings comfort, but at some point we do need the opposite, which is something that's more authentic and rooted in reality and has a bit of uh, more, uh, more depth. So as people are listening to us, a guideline that would help all of us as we create is to look for contrasting points. I like how you call them these tension moments and mm -hmm. um, consider a rhythm between, between them. So picture a ladder that you're pointing first to familiarity perhaps and at some point towards some surprise when you have exhausted those steps. Then you take the same ladder and you point it towards simplicity, you exhaust that, then move towards complexity point the ladder towards something that's predictable, and then you exhaust that, point it towards something that's unpredictable. And the more of a rhythm you have, the more intriguing your content will be for your audiences. Hmm. 
Oh, that's great. And, and all of this, I think, speak, speaks to something that we harp on all the time. Hopefully we are consistent and repetitious in this, <laughs> which is, at ITSMA, which is really, really knowing your audience, right? Because cliche to one person or group is not to another. Complexity, absolutely, right? For different kinds of business audiences, some things are just, oh yeah, that's normal. And for others, it's like, wow, that's really complicated. So true. And I'm, I'm glad that you're mentioning this because let's just say that there comes a time where you may not know who's joining you. Like even right now for the two of us, we don't know mm -hmm. if there are people who may have heard of these uh, statements already or for right. some, these statements may be new, which is why we're recommending that rhythm because then you are more likely to reach uh, more people because you'll have some components that will appeal to some and, and not to others. I'm reminded of this woman that I was listening to who had a, a tough task to create some product packaging for both Japanese speakers and English speakers. So what I appreciated about her solution was that she designed it for the Japanese speakers because those were the primary audience. Mm -hmm. But then she made the letters look so beautiful that even for an English speaker who understood nothing from that package, found it intriguing to look uh, at. The visuals. Were, yes. Yeah. So you still had something to draw you in. And if we can always consider these rhythms between opposites, then we increase the chances of appealing to disharmonious audiences, non-homogeneous audiences. Interesting. All right, let me touch on a couple of things that are maybe a little more of the moment. Okay. The one, and we were joking about this before we, before we got on, is virtual environments and communicating in virtual environments. And, and um, I know a lot of people will be just listening to this, but we are on video as well. And, and you had some comments about virtual backgrounds and, and how, how does that affect? I think you're studying this too. Yes, um, we're looking to study what happens in the brain when it's exposed to some authentic Zoom backgrounds versus the, uh, the ones that you can pick from a list of some digital ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I was complimenting you on the background that you have behind you because um, it looks very inviting. It draws us in and it says something about you. So our connection is instantly different compared to when somebody decides to hide what is behind them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there might be some technical reasons as to uh, why that must happen. And sometimes people use backgrounds as a reinforcement for their brands, which is, uh, which is perhaps a good technique. But we have to wonder at what point are we missing perhaps an opportunity to connect and establish trust, especially when so much business now happens virtually. Mm -hmm. And I would like to, to study that because I don't have an answer just yet. And um, I'm curious to know what, uh, what that is. Yeah, I mean, there was, you know, when the, when the pandemic began, there was so much focus on, quite rightly, I think, on personal connection and empathy and authenticity. And every, you know, I laugh because literally a month before the pandemic, I had just gotten a fancy new corporate green screen backdrop to put behind me and I immediately tossed it. <laughs> I think I used it once. Um, 
But I, I don't know, maybe are we getting away from that and even to our peril is because there was so much emphasis on that for a while last year. Yes, and uh, I hope that the uh, the search for the human connection continues. I remember how I related differently with this one person who initially came on a Zoom call and she had this pristine background, but then something went wrong with this digital one that she had selected. Mm. And suddenly we really could see what was in her background, which was this bedroom in disarray. <laughs> but I connected better with her after that technological glitch because that showed me a glimpse into what was happening. And right. there, was a, there was no veneer. And I would really like to study that formally because one of the advantage of using these neuroscience tools that I was listing is that they do give us a, an undiluted look into psychological and physiological processes in the brain without asking. So I don't have to ask people, did you like that background? Right. I don't have to ask people, how did you react? Uh, I don't have to ask people, were you paying attention to parts of it? I liked a question you asked earlier, by the way, which is what would happen with backgrounds that are too busy? So I think that mm -hmm. might be, a, a, they're realistic, but too busy versus fake and busy versus mm -hmm. realistic and simple versus uh, fake and simple. So already you would have four conditions perhaps in the study. And right. I would like to right. see how that unfolds. My most recent study, which was a couple of months ago, was asking the question, how do people make decisions from remote locations? And when it comes to decision-making, not only do we rely on memories, but in most organizations, those decisions are highly social, which means that you have two people involved in making that decision, three, four, five, according to some analysts, you might have eight plus people yeah. who now have Absolutely. to get together. So for those, you really have to make sure that they have some unified memories where everybody moves away from that remote uh, environment and remembers the same things. So for the very first time in a, in a B2B content, we use not just one EEG cap that you were wearing a while back, but two people were wearing the cap at the same time as they were exposed to a business pitch at the same time. And we wanted to see at what points did their brains synchronize. And it's possible to see synchronization in EEG brainwaves after the fact. So I could take your brainwaves and see at some point, do they have the same amplitude or frequency as somebody right. else's brainwaves? But the presence of another induces brain changes in your own. So neuronal activity changes. So that's why it's important to capture it at the moment when it happens. If you're aware that somebody else is in a room, even though that room may be virtual, but they're still present at the same time, your brain reacts and has different conductivity. So that's why you, you laugh, for instance, a little harder when there's somebody else in the room or you have that social laughter on sitcoms. Right. What we were noticing in that study was that the moment that you ask a question, you lead to a better synchronization between the people's brains. So consider as for, for those listening to us, if you're looking for practical guidelines to apply right away, when you provoke with a question very early on in your sequences, in your pitches or any other artifacts. And then you disclose some data that supports your case, some insights, and then you come back to that same provocative question. We are noticing a better synchronization when the question was provocative and presented early on in the sequence. Oh, interesting, interesting. 
Okay, let me ask you about another technique that has maybe waxed and waned a little bit. And I know you've got interesting thoughts on this, which is storytelling. Because this became all the rage for a while in B2B. I think maybe it's eased a little bit. And I know you've got some you know, evidence-based <laughs> uh, ideas on that. Yeah, when it comes to, to stories, um, everybody these days will say, let us tell you your story. <laughs> right. And when you really think about the flow of ideas, you recognize that it's not really a, tr a story in the true sense. It's more an organization of facts. And I'm not saying that facts are different than stories, but facts are zoomed in stories. And what we're noticing is that for a story to unfold, first of all, you have, you have to define what a story is. What are some components that you must have in order to claim that you have a story? For example, you cannot claim you have a story unless there is some action across time. And unfortunately, in most business content, nothing ever happens. <laughs> you listen next time to somebody who says, let me tell you our story. And you'll notice that it's just some factual information that's presented after some other factual information, after some other factual information. But there isn't really some, something that develops across time. Uh, also, quite often in stories, people who claim business stories were missing some sensory information. Um, and, a, and, a, and a context in which things take place. The more physical the context is, by the way, the better the memory. Um, I'm hooked on the Golden Girls for some reason. And for those listeners who, uh, or viewers who enjoy them, you might remember Sophia, who's one of the four women on the show. And Sophia always starts her stories with, picture it. It's Sicily, it's 1929. And the poor peasant girl is going down the street and you can picture it, it's, it's Sicily. Now there's a context, there's a street, there is a poor peasant girl, and you have some sensory information that helps with memory. And unfortunately in business content, people often say, stay so abstract that it's very difficult to first claim a story and then second to get people to remember that story. You don't have hooks to, to hold on to. You would, yeah, you definitely have to have some, uh, some hooks. So one piece of research that I'm working on um, right now, it's funny that you should mention stories, is, uh, is this. In light of that um, study that I was mentioning earlier for use animations and annotation in order to draw attention, a question that I get quite frequently is, how often should something change on the screen if I'm presenting virtually in order to, to sustain attention? And in that study that we did, we noted that something changed on the screen visually every 8.7 seconds. Already that's a, a tough metric because we would challenge anyone listening to us to go back to a recording from their organization where they were sharing something visually via Zoom or WebEx, any other platform, and take account how often was something changing visually in, a, in that presentation or that stimulus. But then I was going into this a little bit more deeply because it would be unfair to say sustain the type of change of a stimulus for 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at movies, which are based on stories. That's how I'm connecting your, your question. And I noted some studies where people were calculating the average shot length for current movies. And when they were looking at their own stories, what did they have? They had uh, a setup in the beginning where you kind of know what's going on. Then you have some uh, sort of uh, complication. 
because some challenges arise, then you have some development around that complication, then you have a climax and the conclusion. Those are typical story components. And what they were noticing is that the average shot length was a little bit longer in the beginning as you're setting up the context. Uh-huh. And it was decreasing during the, uh, the complication, increasing just slightly during the development, definitely decreasing during climax. So you might have shots that are only two to three seconds long. Sure. Yeah. And then going up again during the conclusion. But what I found equally interesting is that, for instance, in the climax, the shorts are getting shorter, but the amount of movement is getting higher. And the same for the beginning, the shots are longer, but there's also a lot more movement in those to get some interest going on. Whereas for the uh, conclusion, you would have perhaps a longer shot length, but also fewer motions so that there's that release that the brain experiences. So I hope that we all find some inspiration in their findings because the movie industry doesn't have it easy. They too struggle to get our attention and sustain it. So if we're all more humble about looking at how the story unfolds across time, looking at these components and having a good mix between the length of a shot or a slide, for example, and how much movement you you provide, then you're starting to fix this formula on uh, presenting virtually and making sure people focus on you and they're not tempted to look elsewhere. Mm. But it also just, it's the variance, right? The yes. variation, you, yes. you don't want to have every 10 seconds, every, you know, yes. you yes. mix up the pace. Exactly, exactly. I think the yeah, you're saying the key word, which is pace, which hardly ever becomes a, a solid metric in B2B. It's a metric for, for, for movies, but not right. for us. And I think it could be, especially as we're staying virtual. Right, right. Um, let me, uh, this uh, yet, an, uh, so I keep remembering things you've taught me, Carmen, over the years. Um, another one is this whole issue of our attention spans are getting shorter and we need bite-sized content and nobody has the patience or time for long form content. And I, I don't believe that's true. And I don't think you do either. <laughs> I'm so glad that you, that you remember that because um, you're absolutely right. It is not true that we have a shorter attention span. The brain hasn't changed much for the past 40,000 years. We're, we're capable of uh, paying prolonged amount of attention. Um, for instance, do you have any shows that you're hooked on right now, by exactly. the way? Exactly. Um, what are we... Uh... Well, this is, I guess, sort of safe for work, right? We're watching Kevin Can F Himself. which literally takes place in my hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. So a little (laughs) shout out to Worcester and TV recommendation for folks. And it's a parody of a sitcom. It's quite interesting as a, as a a show. (laughs) I I like that. And for those listening in or or watching now we have uh, yet something else to pay attention to. And you probably can attest that as you're paying attention to the show, you're not focused on it for a few seconds or minutes at a time. Exactly. It's probably for an hour plus an hour. Yeah. at a time. Or more, yeah. Well, or more. episodes, <laughs> right, right. No, we, all of everybody, right? I mean, especially over the last year or two. So we're watching hours. Exactly, exactly. So that's why I'm saying that the movie industry or the show industry is a good inspiration for all of us in, in right. business content because they have to uh, to get us and keep us and get us to come back. Right. And uh, many of their, their techniques, if we're willing, could be transferable. 
what I'm worried about though is that people do crave in the business world these um, sound bites, and yeah. because they crave those, then we feed the brain with those, and we're building bad habits in the business brain, and we don't want to instill this notion of superficiality. Because this is why I'm not a proponent. Yeah, you mentioned this before, Carmen. Your concern. Um, tell me more about this. This concern about superficiality. So this trend that I'm noticing, and I hear often, in addition to attention span is shorter, which is not true. You hear this notion of simplify your complexity. You have to be very cautious there, because sure, the brain will enjoy simplicity, and it enjoys it because it doesn't have to exert so much cognitive effort. But at some point. In a study that I was doing, I was able to see how the brain synchronizes better with a complex stimulus, not a simple one. Hmm. And here's the way that we can tell, by the way, in all of the neuroscience studies that I conduct, initially we have to take a baseline of someone's brain. I have to see how their brain reacts to lack of stimulation. So we have them stare at a beige wall. And that happens for about 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and then the stimulus starts. So let's just say you have the beige wall for a brief period of time, and then you're listening to somebody's corporate pitch over Zoom. So of course, initially the beige wall will bring boredom. But then after that settles in, what do you do? You don't just stare at the beige wall externally, you start going inside. And inside there is a lot of stuff that will draw and keep your attention. And what we're noticing after that is that the business content has to be stimulating enough to even compete with your own internal buzz. It's that complexity that now you have to match with what you offer. And if your content is too simple, there is no way that we can stay focused on that simplicity for too long. That's why simplicity is a snoozer. So the advice that I have for all of us listening is to find a way to not simplify complexity, but rather manage it well and still mm -hmm. keep it. And you manage it well through. Um, animation that you're using. So not disclosing everything all at once. You manage it through color and size and organization and information hierarchy. I'm appalled by business content that does not abide, for, ex for example, by information hierarchy rule, where you can't tell what's the main message, what are some subsets, and what are some subsets of that. Right. No, and this is where, you know, PowerPoint is often the worst offender. It's, you know, it's like, okay, I've got a bunch of stuff that I want to show you on a bunch of slides without any sense of what's more or less important. Exactly. And I was just smiling at this uh, gentleman just yesterday. He was showing me some slides that he was planning to uh, share with his sales team. And he said, look at this slide. It has three titles. How can a slide have, have three titles? <laughs> so once you learn how to correct for those, you recognize that you don't have to sacrifice complexity, but just help somebody else's brain see order through the chaos. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay, I think we're, we're down near the end here, Carmen. Um, what should people remember from this conversation? Give us a few... Uh, reminders about how to think more intelligently and, and uh, develop our messaging and content more intelligently. Yes, let's, uh, let's summarize. Um, and our, to practice what we preach, our umbrella message uh, must be control your 10%, that metaphorical 10%, because people will not remember a whole lot, but it's important to be deliberate about it. Under that umbrella message, what are some subsets? You can be deliberate and control your 10% by using repetition. 
in a consistent kind of way. Uh, you can uh, control it by using attention grabbing techniques such as animation annotation, especially if you develop a lot of virtual like components. You can uh, control your 10% by using or balancing what is familiar with what is a bit more surprising, what is predictable with the unpredictable, definitely what is simple with what is complex. That's fabulous. I love it. I love it. Okay. TV recommendation from you. I gave one. Yes. I just um, finished uh, Schitt's Creek. Oh, loved that show. And definitely enjoyed it so much so that in uh, this um, neuroscience study that we did, I wanted to see uh, the answer to the brain on Moira. Oh so as, <laughs> as we were having people wearing the EEG cap, I played that segment, maybe you remember it, where Moira is doing an advertisement for the uh, town. She can't yeah. even, she's embarrassed to say the name of the town, but she's advertising it. And the reason I wanted to see the brain's reactions to that is because it's a sales pitch in a sense. Right. So, <laughs> so it's no wonder that of course, attention was high and uh, arousal, valence, all of those performed really well. What intrigued me is that when we compare that against a business, uh, a business video, if you do a business video right by merging some of these techniques we're talking about, having the variety of the stimulation, varying the length of shots with something that has a lot of movement at the appropriate spots, you can still perform well. And what intrigued me even more, by comparison, we gave people a very boring video to watch, which was somebody just simply stirring some tea leaves in a cup. That put the brain in a relaxation and reflexive mode. So don't feel that for all of your business content, you have to provoke or you have to go all mm. out all the time. Even small segments of relaxation can lead to reflexive thinking, which can be very beneficial of people reflecting on your content and remembering it later. Yeah, well, I, I think this again is those kind of managing those tensions and yes. episodes, right? right? Yes. Okay, so I'm gonna close now here. This, we, this was not planned, but the star of Kevin Can F himself was Alexa, the daughter on Schitt's Creek. <laughs> More reasons to watch the show. Thank you for exactly. that recommendation. <laughs> oh my gosh. Carmen, thank you so much. I love this conversation and lots and lots for people to remember. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, it's a good reminder for us to be a little bit Alexis and uh, yeah. control our 10%. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Let me know what you think and any suggestions about other guests or other topics for future episodes of the podcast. Check out other episodes of C-Suite Marketing on ITSMA.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks again to our sponsor, Boardroom Insiders. Have a great day.